This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Nally. Our guest this week is Dan Hallstrom, President and CEO of the U.S. Meat Export Federation. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. Crop insurance, the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with USMEF's Dan Hallstrom, next. Today's Open Mic segment is brought to you by America's Crop Insurance Industry, which is thankful for the continued support of farmers, commodity organizations, rural businesses, lenders, and lawmakers who are fighting to maintain a strong farm safety net. Providing individualized protection on more than 300 million acres of farmland, crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. The COVID-19 pandemic has had a varied effect on the food supply system globally. While there may have been supply disruptions and certainly changes in food distribution, Dan Hallstrom, president and CEO of the U.S. Meat Export Federation, says consumers are still demanding meat in their diets. The people are still eating, still consuming globally. The way in which they're consuming, sure, it's shifted. There's probably way more retail and, and to some extent less food service, more online, more convenience products, more global digital platforms with which to choose. And I think a lot of those types of changes are here to stay when we do get back to normal, whatever normal is. So I think that's really the moral of the story here is that from our numbers, the consumption itself in a lot of cases is higher than it was in some countries versus pre-COVID. Dan, there's plenty of concern about obviously our domestic economy, but also the global economy. Is global economic performance affecting the volume or the value of sales? Once again, it varies, but yes, it, most definitely uh, that's a concern because one of the drivers through 2019 was a growing middle class globally, was more spending power. Anytime you have more spending power, one of the first areas they look at is increasing the quality and the of their foodstuffs and, you know, less starches, more protein. And when you're consuming chicken, maybe you want to increase that and go to pork and beef. So, yeah, in that perspective, it's concerning um, as we go forward. However, that being said, the performance year-to-date through August and our estimates for the rest of the year, if you had told me in January all this was going to happen and, and, and where, where would you take it on beef and pork, I'd say we're not doing too bad. I think uh, the numbers are hanging in there pretty good. Food service is getting hit hard, especially for beef and maybe not so much for pork. But uh, the numbers are hanging in there. And uh, uh, I think it's pretty just a testament to the fact that the, the markets are pretty resilient and people are still going to eat. They may not take that vacation and may not eat at food service, but they're still eating at home or or uh, you know, consuming via retail in the global marketplace. From a supply perspective, how did the reduced slaughter in the U.S., the plant closures, affect <clears throat> export sales, or did it? Uh, most definitely it did. It was a bit delayed. Um, it wasn't affected right away in April because a lot of the pipeline product is frozen, so it was already May, just hadn't shipped. But as we got into late May, June, and July, we definitely saw the impacts of the, of the plant slowdowns. And, you know, people say, well, why, why are we exporting all this product when we're short domestically? The market's a global market. 
And a lot of these variety meats are exported. They're not consumed here, for example. So I, I think that the answer to your question is that both the domestic and the international were impacted. But that being said, I think what the meat industry did at the, at the packing sector was nothing short of phenomenal in the way they adapted pretty quickly to all these new COVID-19 guidelines and new rules, so to speak. And here we are back, you know, relatively short order, back to 90, 95% of slaughter capacity. Now, it doesn't mean we're not short labor. We are. And we're still seeing that, especially on the fab side of some of these plants. Uh, some of the further trimmed export specification products are tough to come by because there's not enough labor. Uh, same thing with variety meats, not enough labor. But that being said, the numbers still look pretty good from the standpoint of the export year to date. Dan, it's a personal and a professional question in the same uh, in the same guise here. Was it frustrating for you to see animals backing up and in some cases even euthanized because of the harvest shortfall? And what message did that send to our export customers while we were in that situation? Well, yeah, that's always a concern. And, you know, I think anyone in agriculture, you know, it's upsetting from the standpoint of, the fact that had to happen. But on the flip side of that equation is I think the industry got very innovative in how they tried to react to that. Uh, you had a lot of supply of, I think, hogs especially going to maybe non-traditional slaughter uh, facilities, you know, smaller smaller plants, um, you know, lockers, things like this. Uh, they got very innovative, and I think to the extent that they could minimize that, uh, we, we did as an industry. The flip side, as far as it relates to the international customers, I think there was relatively small impact with them in regards to that issue. Keep in mind that uh, the whole world was dealing with COVID at the same time. So I think the eyes of of the customers were on the ball of COVID. And, and, you know, quite frankly, uh, for a while there, they're concerned about just supply period being able to be fulfilled. Same, Same sort of concern that was here in the U.S. So once again, back to the fact that as an industry, we were able to uh, come back as quickly as we did, um, you know, supplying our high quality uh, U.S. beef and pork. Uh, that was a testament. And, and actually, in the end, it was a very big positive for the perception in the eyes of the international customers. Dan, you've already talked about this just a bit, but I'd like to go just a little bit deeper. I'm not sure about you or uh, your family, but I know for myself, one of the frustrations is at 5 o'clock, uh, I know I've got to fix dinner, and I know there's nothing in the fridge that I'm going to be able to pull out, and I really don't want to do fast food. I don't want to go to the grocery and try to find a parking place and try to get in the store and find what I want and wait in line. Convenience has become pretty popular, and I think the COVID situation has exacerbated that. Is that only in the U.S., or are there other places in the world where this trend was taking place and now, post-COVID, we don't expect to change. Jeff, excellent question. And, and the answer is that most definitely convenience, I would argue, is a bigger issue globally than it is here. Pre-COVID, convenience was the driving force in markets like Korea, markets like Taiwan, markets like China. And we are just starting to see the convenience factor, online platforms, uh, you know, this sort of thing starting to take root in Latin America as well. So, and I couldn't agree more with your comment. Uh, in the global markets, all COVID-19 did was to jumpstart that three or four times in terms of demand. 
instead of having one or two platform options in a country like Korea, you might have two or three big guys, but you've got half a dozen or maybe even a dozen smaller platforms. There, every major developed market is going this route, and it's not only home delivery, but it's commonplace delivery. You know, apartment buildings in Shanghai that have maybe five thousand people in a complex. They don't want delivery guys going to the individual apartments, so they have a commonplace for this huge housing area where they deliver all sorts of foods. And parking lot delivery. Costco in Korea, you might have a two or three hour wait to park to go into the retail store. So they have a designated area. You can get on your app. You can order up your USB for US pork and other products, and that you arrive at a set time and they walk out and deliver. You're there only a couple of minutes. These are the sorts of concepts that weren't there pre-COVID, and I think we're going to see not only see more of that. But I think once we get back to some sort of normal on post-COVID, whatever that new normal is, a lot of these concepts are going to become mainstream, and, and it'll just be another source of business to conduct for the U.S. industry and a lot of these global markets. Does this new paradigm in shopping create a better opportunity or environment for the U.S.? Quite frankly, I think it does. Yeah, I think you know one of the pillars that we see. Pillars of uh, support that we see for both for all U.S. products, but I'm particularly interested in U.S. beef, pork, and lamb, um, is is the reputation of quality and safety, and we are the gold standard globally, um, without a doubt. I mean, look at all the different sorts of uh, scandals they've had in China with contamination of products and and whatnot, and of course, by no coincidence, they're cheaper products, right? So even though our costs, our prices might be higher in a lot of cases, which is a good thing because we want to get paid for our quality, you know, I think that we have this pillar of high standard reputation that we can then, you know, that translates very well into a lot of these convenience products. There's, they see product of USA in a lot of cases. That's half the, half the battle to sell the product. So with trade agreements and other negotiations, we try from the outside in to penetrate a market. To try to get to the consumer. But how does it change things when the consumer on the inside of the country is telling their government that they want to buy more of this product from this particular place? Does that help us? Oh, without a doubt, yeah. yeah. If it, the, to the extent we can get consumer-driven and get that pull-through effect in a market, well, most definitely that, that sets your ideal scenario for expanding share. And, uh, you know, it's funny, Jeff, we entered... Uh, 2020. Uh, I know for me, the first week of the of the year, I'm thinking, oh, this is looking pretty good. We have some built-in headwinds that have been shifted to tailwinds, and we have some key trade agreement progress that was made in 2019. U.S. Japan Ag Agreement. I would argue, as it relates to beef and pork, maybe one of the most important uh, trade agreements we've ever had as a country. You look at USMCA, granted that came about a little later, but it was on track in early 2020 to become reality, and it did by July. Uh, we have a European beef agreement that was put into place late 19, implemented in uh, 2020, and of course, the China Phase 1 Ag Agreement. So as we entered the year with all these uh, tailwinds, um, the one thing that we need to keep perspective on, COVID-19 is here, it's come, it's left in some countries, but it's still very much a part of Latin America, for example, right now, and Europe. 
But you know what? What didn't change is these dynamics. We have some very good trade deals put us on a level playing field with our competition when we were at a severe disadvantage a year ago. And these are still in place. So as we come out of the COVID lockdown in Latin America, for example, and when we will come out, it's uh, starting already. And uh, we get back, uh, you know, hitting on all cylinders. We have a lot of upside potential, you know, since we're now on a very level playing field with the Australians on beef and the Europeans on pork. I've been keeping track of the monthly sales, and it does look like in the early part of the year, the mid-year, things had slowed down. But obviously, with your August report, things are looking much better. I want to talk about that over the next few minutes, but I want to lead with pork in China. I think about the beginning of this year, and, and it's been tough on the whole meat industry, beef producers, but I want to talk about pork for just a second. Pork producers here geared up with greater production. We had greater packing capacity, and we had a global market that appeared to be red hot with African swine fever and an opportunity to capture it, and then COVID hit. So the question that I would have for you here now, Dan, is what's happening in China, and is there still an opportunity for U.S. pork to move in there, or is that door rapidly closing? Uh, Jeff, no, a good question. Um, it's most definitely short to medium term an opportunity. Um, you know, they are repopulating. Um, to what degree, it's very hard to know. You know, the, the, the statistics and the the info, official data coming out of China is not nearly as reliable as it here, is here in the U.S. Uh, but we know they're repopulating. But we also know that, that you know, pick a number. Um, once again, it's, it's hard to know what, what's totally accurate. But what was the impact of ASF over the last two years? You know, some, some people say it's 50% of their hog herd. Others say it's 40%. I would contend that it's a big number. I don't know what the exact number is, but it's big. So, yeah, to come back from that doesn't happen overnight. Now, they're, they're making every effort to do so, and they are making progress, but I would argue that they're still not, not close to pre-ASF levels. So, in my mind, that means the rest of this year, going into 2021, continues to be an opportunity, without a doubt. Now, that being said... We can't be dependent upon China in the pork industry. It's great. We're going we're gonna to maximize the opportunity while it's there. But one of our strategic priorities in working closely with the pork industry is that we have to maximize the opportunities all over the world. You know, our, our core markets, Japan, we have a Japan-U.S. ag agreement where we're making huge progress uh, getting back some of that lost share of the last few years with this new agreement. You look at Mexico, you know, granted, it's a bit of a slowdown right now with the COVID-19, but it'll come back because pork is a staple down there. Korea is another one. Absolutely phenomenal progress in Korea, not only on pork, but beef as well. But then you have some other regions of the world that we've been investing in as an industry, and we're seeing it start to pay off. Central America and South America, specifically uh, Colombia. Colombia has made dramatic growth in the last five years. Peru, Chile, and then you go into Central America, Guatemala, Nicaragua, Panama. These are all places that, uh, looking at them individually, they're not so big. You add them up together, and, and it's uh, hundreds of millions of dollars of trade that's going on today. And that all has the potential to grow over time. So, so we're focused on China, yes, but we're also focused on diversifying the portfolio and making some hay while the sun shines in some of these other countries as well. Dan, doggone, if you don't almost sound optimistic, friend. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I am optimistic. And, you know, there's a lot of curveballs being thrown at us, which is can get you down. 
but I try to think about the positives, and the positives are that uh, we are on a level playing field in most of these countries now, um, and, and if we have a, a level opportunity, we're going to win. So I've got to give you this opportunity. The August numbers came in, and just tremendous sales for U.S. beef and pork, the muscle cuts, Taiwan, my goodness, over three-fourths of the market share of, of chilled beef. Uh, this last month's report looked good, Dan. It did, yeah. And <clears throat> in, in Taiwan and Korea, both, uh, well, and China, um, beef. We didn't talk a lot about beef to China, but that China Phase 1 agreement on beef was outstanding in, in regaining access on a uh, not a totally level playing field, but it's more level than it was. So, yeah, uh, we were up uh, 22% in Korea, record monthly exports for the month of uh, August. Taiwan was up 20%, was also a month monthly record. And China, uh, at 3,900 metric tons, was up over 400% versus a year ago. Small numbers, but a high-value market. So, yeah, there's some good things, uh, good things going on in Asia. Keep in mind, Asia's on the other side of this curve of COVID-19. It's not normal. Uh, Korea is still struggling a bit, but it's coming back. So, honestly, Jeff, I think we have that to look forward to in the rest of the world as we go from the west to the east. Uh, I'm I'm really gearing our team up with the industry for a rebound in Mexico and Central America, South America, when we get to the other side of COVID, which I'm hoping is sooner rather than later here. The last time that I had the opportunity to talk to, talk to Undersecretary Ted McKinney, he was pretty optimistic about what was possible, maybe not short-term, but long-term in Africa. Do you share his optimism? Yeah, yeah, I am a, I'm a, I'm a very large proponent of the opportunity in Africa. Uh, I've made several trips there myself uh, back in the 2015 to 2018 time frame. Um, Africa reminds me a lot of Mexico in the mid-1980s, and look at where Mexico is today. Um, and I'll guarantee you it's not going to take Africa 35 years to get to where Mexico is. They're, they have uh, the youngest demographic in the world of their population, a lot of younger people. They're coming into their spending years. And of course, I'm generalizing. It varies by country, but in general, a lot of opportunity there. And uh, you know what? Um, technology is already there. Um, you know, virtually everyone has some sort of a, you know, iPhone or, or the equivalent thereof. So I think the progress in Africa is, is monumental. And, uh, you know, there are a billion people on the continent today, and depending which economist you listen to, by 2040 we'll be at 2 billion. So a lot of, a lot of risk because it's a brand new area with a lot of growing pains that are going to be coming. But a lot of opportunity as well on, on both beef, pork, and all three, lamb as well. What trade agreements do you need to open doors for U.S. beef and pork for 2021 and beyond? Well, you know, there, there, there's one that's top of mind right now. Uh, actually, two. Uh, you know, one is the EU situation with Brexit. Um, I know uh, just on a, some calls earlier this week with, with USDA and USTR, and they're working feverishly to get a, a UK-US deal done. Um, of course, the way that looks kind of depends a little bit on how the UK-EU Brexit deal looks, and there's a lot of moving parts there. But 
but I, I'm very optimistic that there's there's more opportunity than not uh, with this uh, Brexit UK deal. So so that would be one. Uh, another one that kind of flows into your previous comments on, on Africa is that we're right smack dab in the middle of the Kenya free trade agreement with the U.S. and and I think that one's especially exciting because uh, if we can get a deal done with Kenya, which you know the, the gold standard model. That, that we're using in terms of structure is a lot of similarities to USMCA that was implemented on July 1. And um, if we can get a deal with Kenya and kind of set the standard for the continent of Africa, uh, this would be just monumental in trying to establish other relationships throughout Africa. So, um, yeah, there's some really exciting things going on. But that's two, Jeff, right now that are already in, in the process, and we'll see how, how soon we can get those done. Well, Dan Hallstrom, we appreciate very much the work that you and your staff at the U.S. Meat Export Federation put forth on behalf of our red meat industry. We appreciate the success you found and wish you much success in the future. Uh, thanks for taking time to be with us on this edition of Open Mic. Dan, it is Open Mic, and today you've got the last word. Well, thank you, Jeff. It's been a real honor to, to be on your uh, on your show uh, anytime. I'm always available. But I think I think the final word here would be that uh, we wouldn't be able to do what we're doing without all the producers uh, and the infrastructure, the the ag chain in the U.S. And uh, it's the great beef, pork, lamb producers, the grain producers that put together the uh, the, the high quality products that we are able to sell overseas. So really, job well done to your listeners, and we'll continue working hard to grow exports globally. Our thanks to Dan Hallstrom, President and CEO of the U.S. Meat Export Federation, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. Crop insurance, the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Daly.